must constantly look at things in a different way. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast was created by two physical therapists out of the desire to learn more about the different educational roles in physical therapy and healthcare and how healthcare education works by talking with educational leaders and people with different perspectives within physical therapy and across interdisciplinary lines on how education can be improved to disrupt the status quo of healthcare education. This is our journey, and thanks for listening. Are you a third-year physical therapy student that excels on tests when you have study guides, checklists, and deadlines? With all of the information available about how to prepare for the NPTE, it's easy to get disorganized and not feel prepared going into the big day. NPTE Prep Success is an online course that provides PT students easy-to-use study guides and step-by-step guidance through the NPTE preparation. To learn more, visit kylericeprep.com. Thank you again all for your continued support, and now for the show. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the HET Podcast. I am your host, Brandon Pollan, and today I am really happy to welcome a very prominent and well-known SCCE to chat about kind of her perspective uh, being an SCCE along with kind of her um, experience perspective on clinical education from her perspective. Um, and with that, I have the distinct pleasure of welcoming um, Dr. Chrissy Ropp. Um, I also want to give a personal shout out and thank you to Dr. Carol Beckel for recommending Chrissy for this episode. Um, and I thought it was funny, Chrissy, when I first reached out to you and Carol told me about you that, uh, you know, we were with OSF because uh, two of my um, clinical sites for my clinical education and education were uh, with OSF. So it was good to see a a familiar name there, but uh, I, I appreciate you taking the time to chat today, and you know, thanks for coming on. Sure, thanks for having me, Brandon. Um, we um, at OSF really value education, and uh, the administration has done a lot to support um, fostering clinical education in rehab disciplines, just as well as medical education, uh, and have us not be seen as kind of a tag along and develop our curriculum and our our program in its own right. Yeah, and I'm I'm excited to kind of dive a bit more into that because your perspective, I'm sure, is very unique and distinct, which I love. Um, but let's back up a little bit and let's just kind of set the stage a little bit. Would you mind sharing a little bit more about kind of your story with kind of how you got involved with OSF to kind of where you are now as the uh, Rehabilitation Clinical Internship Coordinator? Sure. Um, I am from Peoria. Uh, Peoria is the location of the, the largest uh, OSF medical center. Um, I actually worked as a rehab tech there before I went away to school. I always knew I wanted to go into physical therapy. Um, So I got some really great uh, on-the-job training as a tech prior to going away. When I went uh, to college uh, in the late 80s, it was extremely competitive, and um, there were not as many programs as there are now. So I didn't get into any programs that were really close or commutable. So Um, Of the programs that I went into, I decided to take the big leap, and I went to uh, school in Los Angeles, um, which was really interesting for me because it's in a very different healthcare environment on the coast than it is in the Midwest. So that was um, eye-opening and really educational for me. Um, I also, though, had signed a pre-employment contract with OSF. So at the time, I came back and committed to work there for two years. And I always thought Peoria was a small town, so I was really planning to fly the coop and and go back to a big city. But something happened, and uh, 25 years later, I am still uh, in the Peoria area uh, working for OSF. So we recently uh, went through a reorganization within rehab, and we report up 
through a rehab chain of command. So we don't report to the entities at each facility. We report through a rehab structure, and then we have a senior vice president who is a PT who sits at the table of the board with all of those facility presidents. So rehab has a really strong presence within the OSF network. Uh, and I really like that autonomy that that provides our therapist. And Chrissy, I kind of want because we haven't really actually had um, someone from the position of an SCCE um, really on at this time yet to kind of get their perspective on education and clinical education. So let's start at the beginning because I think we got to get an understanding of kind of what SCCEs have to do. So would you mind kind of sharing a little bit about what you specifically have to do for this position just to kind of give some context? Sure. So there are no formal requirements uh, to be a site coordinator. Basically, you have to have a heart rate, heart rate and be breathing. There's also no formal training. Uh, that has changed a little bit. There's some collaborative uh, uh, programming that happens at the Education Leadership Conference each year on new site coordinator training. So experienced site coordinators, such as myself, <laughs> present content um, and, and act as a, a resource for developing programs. Some SCCEs don't have any administrative support, so they actually do their role in addition to full-time patient care and or full-time mentoring. So that might look like a clinician, you know, has a passion for education and they essentially do this role on the side. So the site coordinator ideally uh, coordinates the clinical rotation, so you want to make sure you know uh, capacity issues at your clinics, how many students can you have, who has strengths in mentoring students, um, who needs guidance to do that. Um, there are a lot of administrative duties validating the requirements uh, as far as uh, vaccinations and CPR, those kind of things. Um, there is a lot of communication that goes out. Students are very anxious before they come to their rotations. They want to know everything. And just like we always learned in class, it depends is the number one answer in PT. So, you know, we set up a rotation sometimes a year in advance, and a lot can happen with staffing in a year. So there's a lot of juggling. It's very dynamic. We have to reschedule rotations. Employees become pregnant, or perhaps they're getting married during the rotation. So I will change the CI assignment so that, you know, I, I don't want to put the extra stresses and work of having a, a student. Um, which it is extra work and extra stress because we're very uh, engaged in education and we want the students to to have a great experience. But I don't want to put that extra work on somebody, you know, during a really important time of their life, uh, like when they're getting married or just coming back from maternity leave or something like that. Um, so there's it's a very dynamic process. Um, there's a lot of mentoring with the staff, um, trying to get them to remember what it was like to be a new grad and uh, realize that they didn't always have this 15 years of experience and this 15 years of practice knowledge. And um, sometimes just mediating the discussions and making sure people are hearing each other correctly, connecting students with resources of their schools. Students um, tend to find their schools as a punitive resource. <laughs> Please don't contact my school. Um, but you know, the schools are really there to support the students and they're also there to support the, the clinical instructors. Um, so really working as the basically the clinical DCE. Um, so I'm I'm the the clinical side um, in academic programs. It's called the DCE, the Director of Clinical Education, and then on the clinical side, it's the Site Coordinator of Clinical Education. 
Wow. I mean, it just seems like there's such so many things going on within that. And I'm just, I mean, I'm curious how you kind of juggle it all, but you know, given all those duties, what about, you know, this position do you find is the most difficult? Like what are the most challenging avenues of this job that you usually have to encounter? Right. So there, um, there's a lot of variety in the job and um, just the forms. Um, March 1st is when we get our requests for clinical rotations for the following year. So again, we're planning in the future and all we can do is kind of give our best guess. But every form that we get from the schools is different. There have been some efforts to get coordinated forms so that there's less variety, but each school still tends to tweak the forms to meet their needs. So in essence, it it really is just a different form for every school. Um, Time is a big aspect. Um, Clinicians need support for me. The students need support for me. Um, it, it, it kind of has turned into a seven day a week job and I have a hard time personally, uh, you know, not meeting that seven day need. I seem, I seem to work 365 days a year and that is by choice just because I, I want students to walk in feeling prepared. And, and when a clinician is in the, in the clinic and they're very busy, I need to be able to respond to their needs so that they can meet the patient's needs and the student's needs as well. Um, There are a lot of changing regulations with third-party payers, um, changes in laws for access and and disabilities. Uh, So how are we going to meet students that have learning disabilities? How are we going to meet their needs? Um, And then Knowledge of Individual State Practice Act. So we practice in Illinois and Michigan within OSF. However, our students come from all over, Nebraska, Connecticut, you know, um, just all over. So the practice actually applies to the state they're practicing in, but, you know, we need to be able to speak to that with the students and we don't want to put them in a position where they feel they're having to make a choice between two rights. Um, so, so there's a lot of, uh, of other knowledge that, that needs to happen with Practice Act. For my role, particularly geography is kind of an issue. Um, our clinics, there are 15 hospitals and then their corresponding clinics and they're spread over two states and hundreds of miles. So I can't be physically present to help in difficult situations all the time. I do use technology as needed. And then if there's if there are specific situations, we, we do, I do try to do a site visit so that um, the clinician and the student both feel supported. Yeah, I mean, given I mean, given all the things that you had really just mentioned there, I mean, that's clearly a lot of things. And I give you strong kudos for doing all that you do and you know putting the time in because I know it's making a difference. Um, but I'm gonna back up and kind of ask like, what do you think that most CI students or even DCEs are usually not really aware of when it comes to being an SCCE or kind of your perspective? Like what are some of those more unknown or maybe things that people usually aren't as aware of regarding this position? Uh, I'm not really sure about the position, um, but I think that um, in, in my specific position, I'm very supported by administration. So I have some time to actually develop um, a strong program so that we can hold students and clinicians accountable for educating. Now, not all site coordinators have that. So it's hard for for DCEs because they work with hundreds of clinics. So it's hard to remember who has what resources. So I think that is one of the pros behind OSF having one uh, one person in my position because it's easier to identify coincidences and and similarities between all locations in one organization. I don't think students don't realize the connection that we have with the school. So, you know, we we do unfortunately still get many students who think they're very, very smart and they're pulling something over on us. (laughs) But we are in 
close communication with the schools frequently, um, and that is to build the profession. And and that's what it all comes down to. It's the relationships, the relationships that students are making with their CIs and vice versa, also with their patient, who is of utmost importance. And then the school support and the clinic administration support to create an environment where we can build that knowledge and create a strong foundation for the future of our of our profession. Yeah, and you had mentioned part of this earlier, Chrissy, but I kind of just want to kind of reiterate this point. Were there any, besides, of course, having a heart rate and a pulse, uh, were there any other uh, specific like um, continuing requirements that SCCEs have to do? Is there any kind of overseeing regulation or any things that they have to meet to stay at this position or no? There are not. Um, of course, there are lots of things that we can recommend. Um, I, I think being obviously a member of the APTA is extremely important. There are um, news bulletins and resources that come out at lightning speed, and, and the APTA has been instrumental in getting that communication out. Um, the APTA has also been collaborating with leadership for the AOTA and ASHA. When we recently had some concerns about Medicare maybe not paying for student services in the inpatient setting as well, so they were very agile and responded to those concerns. And had you not been a member, you wouldn't know what was going on. So you would potentially be practicing with a student in a in a really uh, volatile situation. Um, there are the education section has a conference every year, the Education Leadership Con Conference. Um, it's held in October, and I've been going for probably 10 or 15 years. And it is a really great conference. It started really um, from the academic perspective but they have been really trying to grow the clinical perspective uh, for the last probably five years, um, such to the point that there are academic programs that are sponsoring clinicians to come, like helping pay their way. There are, I believe, 40 scholarships that are awarded by um, ACAPT and the APTE so that more clinicians go. And it's really great to build relationships with the academic partners. Um, I think one thing that clinicians, especially clinicians that went to school in the 80s and 90s, you know, when we were students, we were with our CI all day long, connected at the hip. And that's really not where education is. You know, it, it is very valuable to have time away from your students so you don't go crazy. And so they have a little autonomy. They can sit and think and reflect and have time to synthesize the information they've just seen. Um, it is great for them to go with a case manager or with an occupational therapist or a nurse, um, you know, to just see healthcare being delivered as well as physical therapy or, you know, their PTA curriculum. Yeah, no, I mean, that seems very, very logical. And, and Chrissy, I know that, you know, given um, your experience with this position, I would just kind of really like to kind of give your insight on this next one, because I recognize there might be some um, newer SCCEs that are kind of coming on board, or maybe even others that might be struggling. Um, so what have you found from your perspective that tends to usually work most effectively with coordinating um, clinical education from your sites? Like, what have you found works versus what hasn't? So administration backing is crucial. Um, a site coordinator needs to have the time to support and develop um, good clinical education, uh, creating a curriculum. The clinical credentialing instructor program level two has been redesigned and the focus on that program is on creating a clinical curriculum. Uh, I had already taken the advanced course. We are hosting the level two course coming up uh, in February 
And so I actually just attended that course this past weekend with one of my coworkers to kind of preview the content so that we could see how the course would be most useful for us so that when we bring and host the course with OSF, it is our staff that are working in a collaborative fashion to create the curriculum for students instead of me in a site coordinator role saying, here's the curriculum to follow. Um, I think when there's uh, uh, collaboration among the staff, you're going to get, number one, better buy-in, as well as what, what's reasonable and practical. You know, they are the boots on the ground in the clinic. So administrative um, backing is crucial. Um, communication is key. Uh, what are the expectations of the employees? Do all employees have to have students? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, it is an expectation at my facility that, that all employees take students. I will say, though, that some employees are not good clinical mentors. So what that means is more work for me, um, mediating, uh, getting them the resources, helping them teach, helping identify student learning styles, things like that. Um, but at some point, I think we need to evaluate the skills of someone as an educator because these students are paying a lot of money and the outcomes are critical. So if you don't have a good instructor um, and couldn't meet the student's needs. So I think you know we, we're, we're constantly looking at whether or not everyone should teach. Do they need to step up and learn how to teach? Or do we want to say, you know, some people just aren't cut out to be teachers. Um, the reason we took the approach that we felt like all of our staff should teach is because we all teach patients. Um, so that was kind of the foundation. But, you know, it's just clinical education is, is always changing. So you have to be very dynamic. Um, one of the things that it, it surprises me to this day, I, I'm still developing some norms. Um, the, for example, the clinical um, CPI, clinical performance instrument, uh, has classifications of simple, complex, and highly complex for patient types. Now, I, in, a, in my practice, my clinical practice, I worked in the neuro ICU for a long time. So it would be very common for me to see somebody on an oscillating ventilator with a ventriculostomy, um, you know, on a rotating bed. <laughs> Those kind of things become simple after a while. However, a student walks into that room and sometimes passes out, honestly. So um, we had to really step back and say, what does simple look like for a novice clinician? What does complex look like? And then at some of our trauma centers, what is highly complex? We wouldn't expect a student to handle. You know, we could expose them to that, but we certainly wouldn't expect them to handle it. Um, so we've had to really uh, come up with some standards, common definitions, what is simple, what is complex, what is our productivity standard? Productivity is not a focus for us with our students. However, students need a number that they can target. So we did uh, come up with a number that we want them, you know, what does 50% of a schedule mean? What does 75%? Um, and that's graduated for a student because we don't expect them to function and make those automatic clinical pattern decisions that we make, you know, with 20 years of experience. So um, just the development of forms and, and standards um, at our facility, it, it still happens, you know, and I've been doing this for a long time. And I think, why didn't I develop this before? But things always pop up. Yeah. Hindsight's always twenty twenty, isn't it? 
Yep. Yeah. And, you know, Chrissy, given that, of course, you work with, you know, of course, not only just the students and the CIs, but also the DCEs in the schools, um, you know, I'm really curious because I know we're probably going to have a few DCEs on. Um, what can DC, DCEs do best to help support an SCCE in their role? Like what, what are some things that a DCE can do from their perspective to assist um, the SCCE in advancing and doing kind of the stuff that they're doing? Um, I am very fortunate to work with some great DCEs. I think that has something to do with being in the Midwest where we're all real friendly and we like to get along. Uh, so we're really collaborative and cooperative. Um, they take my feedback and integrate suggestions for change. They are open to providing me feedback on individual mentors or on our program overall um, so that we can improve and change our program. Um, and so I, I think, it, like I said, in the Midwest, it's, it's very co uh, cooperative and collaborative. I know sometimes I go to the national meetings and, you know, I, especially in the, uh, the New England area, there's a really densely populated um, proliferation of schools. And so it's really competitive to get those clinical spots. And, and so I, I feel that competition even in meetings. And it's, it's often in the Midwest where people will work together to use spots or not. And there's maybe a three-way conversation going on between myself and two different schools saying, well, I could give you this spot if you can give me that spot. Um, they would love to see all programs, all DCEs adopt recommendations, um, such as like the forms that we talked about earlier. So when something's put out by the APTA, you know, not tweaking it to meet the school's need, um, those kind of things, it becomes confusing um, and extra work for the site coordinators. Uh, I do have several DCEs that return all of their student clinical requirements to me in a packet. So like, you know, for student John Doe, I will get all five attachments from the DCE. So I know they've met all of their requirements and they're ready to go on their rotation. Um, from my perspective, I love that because it's easy and everything's done. What it doesn't do is facilitate independence on the student's part. <laughs> so, you know, there's some pros and cons to that approach, um, uh, but it does make that easier for my job. Well, and that makes sense. And I think it's really interesting when you kind of said just how it's different in the Midwest with those kind of relationships. What do you think is unique besides, of course, the people in the Midwest just being awesome? Um, what, <laughs> why else do you feel like that is unique? To like, why do you feel like what else is the Midwest doing in that situation that's different? And why do you think that, that a model or collaboration of that level isn't happening across the country? Uh, I really think it has to do with the, the population of schools in geographic regions. So. Um, uh, the Southern California area has a lot of PT programs. The Northeast has a lot of PT programs. Florida has a lot of PT programs. Um, and even though there, there are quite a few in the Midwest, they're spread out. You know, there might be four per state. When you're talking about Missouri, that's a decent-sized state, you know, but you're talking about Massachusetts, you know, that's a lot smaller state. Um, now, people-wise, it's not. Um, but when the geography is more spread out, you have more clinics just in numbers to reach out to. Um, and then, like you said, the Midwest is awesome. Well, I mean, we're not biased or anything. We're not from the Midwest <laughs> or anything. So let's just, let's just throw our biases out there. You know, you know, let's, you'd mentioned, of course, a little bit earlier, a few things, of course, one of them being um, having to sometimes set realistic expectations for the CI of the student and kind of navigate that. Um, but what are some of the other bigger concerns that you hear from CIs kind of being in your position? Um, 
Oh, a lot of things. There's there's some concern um, about anxiety, student anxiety and student mental health. It They have a lot on the line by the time they come to the clinic. And in general, especially PT students are uh, very smart. They're academically inclined. And putting that all together and then talking to people can be, number one, scary. Number two, they're in an environment away from their support. Um, and sometimes they really freak out. Um, so we, we've had some real crucial um, instances with our students where, you know, we first of all, you just try to be human to them, but you also have to hold an expectation. You know, when you get out into the working world, you're going to be expected to come to work and perform 40 hours a week and leave your problems at home, you know, and deal with the patient in front of you because they are paying a lot for your services. Uh, and in the time of direct access, we need everybody, all of our clinicians to really be focused uh, to elevate our field uh, and then the acknowledgement, notoriety, acceptance of physical therapy as a practitioner of choice. No, I mean, I think that seems really, really logical. And I mean, given that, I mean, because you kind of, I mean, you want to be empathetic, but also realize like, this is the job. This is what's going to happen. And I, I completely yeah. concur. And I think, and I'm going to be a little biased here because I feel like in some ways I was shielded a little bit too much. And I think that kind of did negatively contribute to feeling like getting hit with a bus a little bit later. But right. So, and I don't know what the right balance is for that. I, I don't know. You know, it's interesting because we were talking a little bit about forms and staying consistent and organized with that. And, you know, Carol actually had mentioned on her podcast episode that um, the thing she would like to see changed about healthcare education was a specifically uh, centralized location in which had all the clinical education information that could be easily accessed. Um, from one location. Um, what are your thoughts on this? And do you think that this will be a reality in the near future? Um, well, I, I hope it will be a reality. I completely agree with this concept. Uh, I was actually at a conference this past weekend with Carol, and we were talking about it again. Um, it seems that there should be the potential for this to occur because the APT has already gone to the centralized application process for both you know, professional programs as well as residency and fellowships. Um, so there needs to be some kind of coordinated effort and resources uh, put forth by the APTA uh, to manage because this would really fit in the category of big data. There certainly, though, are requirements that every student uh, is, is going to have to have in a clinic, CPR, vaccinations. Um, maybe we should have a uh, learning style inventory. How does the student learn? Um, a student profile, the syllabus for the actual clinical course they're in. So basically, a unified um, approach from all schools. Uh, what do we in clinics? What do we need? And let's put that in a centralized um, location. That actually has come up. I'm a, uh, on the board of directors for the National Consortium of Clinical Educators, which is a consortium of ACAP. That is something that I brought up um, a couple months ago. We have a lot of uh, irons in the pot right now, though. Um, the interesting thing about the NCCE is that it is focused on the partnership. So half of the participants are academicians and half are clinicians. So it is that partnership that clinical education isn't just the afterthought of the PT program or kind of the final stepping stone. It is an equal partner to get the student to entry level. Um, I would say the one thing that comes to mind is maintaining the accuracy of the information is is a problem. Um, through the CPI, there, there is a data collection tool uh, called the um, CSIS, the Site 
specific information form. But when you're talking about some clinic administrations who don't really support the role of SCCE with dedicated time, that is the very last thing that's going to be on the to-do list is to update that CSIF annually. So that would just be outdated information. So if it could be easy to do, not take very much time and be standardized and site coordinators would have supportive time from their administration, I think that could be done very easily. We have also recently been talked about uh, or talking about some regional consortia uh, placement processes. Uh, I personally am not in favor of a centralized pool for clinical placements. I really actually started to grow the, the partnership model between individual academic programs um, before it really became a national focus. I just find it easier to work with, say, 20 schools closely than 50 schools and not really have a good uh, knowledge base on what they expect from their students. So uh, if, you, if we have a centralized pool of clinical placements, we can be taking school, students from schools that we don't know. Not that those schools are bad, but you just don't have the level of comfort uh, and knowledge of what they expect, what they've been taught what their approaches are, um, and it leaves gaps for the, the real talk conversations that need to happen. So if a student is struggling, it's much more difficult for me to pick up a phone and talk to a DCE when I don't really know them. Uh, and are they focused on academics? Are they focused on professionalism? Are they focused on mental health? Are they, you know, have high expectations, low expectations? So therefore, I'm not really in favor of a centralized pool for clinical placements. Um, but for standard repository of clinical information, as well as academic information on programs, I think that um, would really serve the profession well. Let's talk a little bit more about the students. Um, what, what characteristics do you see as the most important for students to demonstrate during a clinical placement? Um, I would say professionalism. And to me, that means timeliness. Um, do they know what the social norms are in a work environment? Um, I would prefer that a student is interested and engaged in the clinical content, even if it's not their self-identified area of practice preference. Um, so especially coming from acute care as my, my area of clinical practice preference, so many students come to their acute rotations and they already know they're going to work with peds or they already know they're going to work in outpatient orthopedics. But what they have to understand is the patient had to go through acute care before they made it to outpatient. Um, before they made it to rehab. Um, and so how, what's the foundation? How far has the patient progressed? And having that experience and knowledge um, has, is really important to the latter rotations and vice versa. When I did my outpatient orthopedic rotation, I hated it. I don't like orthopedics. I still don't. Um, but it was really valuable for me to uh, validate exercise prescription, um, biomechanics, all of those things that guess what, I use in acute care as well. So um, I really need the students to be interested and engaged. I feel like clinicians, almost even more than teaching students physical therapy, should be teaching them communication and professionalism and resourcefulness. So I'm not going to remember, you know, every bone in the body forever. But if I forget, then what do I do? I go look it up. I think back to my biomechanic basics and I can go from there on the, the foundational principles that I learned a couple of years ago. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you're basically saying, kind of facilitating them to be kind of lifelong learners because you're right. In the real world, at some point, 
that skill is going to be pulled out at some at, at some point in time because something when I was an adjunct teacher, one thing I made the undergrad students do was you're going to write a research paper on a condition you've never heard of before because you're going to have to research it, find out all about it, tell me how your treatment would modify, what do you have to look out for because it's going to happen at some point. I mean, it's a, right. it's, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, and you need to be prepared and know how to find that information and how to learn about it and how to adjust accordingly. Right. And one of like one example that just comes to mind quickly is, you know, I had a problem with a student um, in the, the previous spring and the student didn't want to engage with the patients because they hadn't seen that yet. They hadn't seen an ACL repair yet, but they had seen a total knee. So they were on their last rotation. And, and so we had to come down to, you're not going to see everything before you graduate, but you've seen a post-op patient, you know the knee, what resources can you find on your own to pull those pieces together? Uh, and I think that's really where a strong uh, clinical instructor comes in is, you know, not giving them the answer, but making them stand on their own two feet and find the answer. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. And, you know, kind of just a random side question here. Uh, what do you like the most about uh, seeing and helping students in the clinic? Oh, there are so many things. Um, I adopted the collaborative model early on in my clinical experience. So having multiple students at one time and watching the students work together, um, it allowed us to be much more aggressive with our patients um, because I had extra sets of hands, extra sets of semi-skilled hands at that point. Um, I love their aha moments. I like teaching them to become re reflective practitioners. Um, most importantly, I really enjoy teaching them to see patients as people and the value that they bring um, to, to teach the students as well. Yeah. And, you know, Chrissy, it's been interesting because I've heard, uh, I think it's been interesting how clinical education in terms of length um, of experiences has certainly changed. I mean, even since I was a student, I mean, I had a six week and then three, eight weeks, and now I'm hearing um, a lot of tools are expanding, expanding the 10 or 12, sometimes even longer. Um, I'm just kind of curious where, from your perspective, how, what is your viewpoint pretty much on kind of the longer clinical rotations compared to more like a six to eight week rotations? Like what have you found um, that's kind of unique with those? So I think clinical education is tricky because there's a capacity issue in certain practice areas. Uh, so if we lengthen the clinical education experience further, it would reduce the opportunity for students to experience the variety of clinical settings. And our goal is to graduate entry-level generalist practitioners. However, new employers have high expectations for new grads. So longer clinical rotations might prepare the student better for a specific practice area, but leave them lacking in another practice area. Um, but I think, you know, remembering back to the foundation that we're trying to graduate generalist um, PT practitioners is important. Um, so it might be as important um, to instill the values of work ethic and professionalism, quest for knowledge, utilization of resources, uh, instead of advanced clinical education experience in niche practice areas. Uh, so, you know, one example that comes to mind is uh, dry needling. Uh, it being taught in entry-level programs now. If we keep adding content to these programs, they're going to continue to lengthen in time and therefore cost. And uh, student debt is a huge issue for students, which is impacting their anxiety and their mental health. So at what point do we say, this is the end of, 
uh, generalist entry-level practitioner and something like dry needling, maybe that's advanced and that is something they're going to have to uh, go through certification for after graduation. There are so many areas that are developing in rehab and in physical therapy that um, I, I, I don't know that it's possible to teach the students everything. Um, so I, you know, we've done some informal surveying of students and, and also clinical mentors. And it seems to be that 10 to 12 weeks is kind of the sweet spot. Uh, it gives the students long enough in one setting to gain confidence and experience and then have time to practice in a setting that they're familiar with and with staff that they've gotten to know before we upheaval and send them off to a new site. You know, so through the literature, we know that uh, mass practice is important for skill mastery. And we tend to think of that as one skill, like throwing a ball repeatedly. Um, but clinical education is also skill mastery. So if we give them a supportive environment and allow them to practice a similar patient population for a while, they will gain more mastery. Uh, I said before that productivity is not the focus of our student program, um, but we do also need the rotations to be of a sufficient length that the students actually end up being a little bit productive by the end so that we have a neutral overall cost for our students uh, because there definitely is a decrease in productivity in the beginning of the rotations when we're onboarding the students and, and the therapists are doing a lot more teaching and education. So once they've gained some independence and some autonomy where they're safe and appropriate to be independent with the patient, we need enough time to kind of recoup our productivity losses. You know, Chrissy, I know this is a huge question here, and this could probably be a whole separate podcast episode of your, of itself, but I want to kind of just get what your big answer would be. If, you know, what do you see are the biggest glaring issues in clinical education across the country, and how would you recommend optimally addressing them to move forward in the best way we can? Uh, so I think the biggest concern right now uh, approaching us is the proliferation of academic programs. There are PT and PTA programs that are developing in the numbers of 10s to 20s each year. And um, if we have a capacity issue for clinical education sites, I'm not exactly sure how we're going to teach those students to be competent practitioners. So I'm, I'm not really sure how to address that. I understand free market. I understand, you know, as long as uh, they're meeting CAPT criteria, you know, those kind of things. Um, but there is definitely going to be an impact on the, the uh, clinical education sites. So I think that's a big problem. Um, the student loan debt is a huge issue. Some clinical sites are now requiring a fee for placement. Um, so then I wonder, you know, are students going to free, free clinical rotations because they don't have to pay more? And then are those free clinical placement sites substandard or not? You know, I, I certainly know um, both sides of the story. Um, there are some task forces looking at payment for placement rotations. Um, but I, I just have a lot of concerns about requiring payment uh, to come to my clinical setting and interact with me. I don't feel like that's very collaborative. Uh, we definitely have areas for growth in our IT infrastructure uh, for better use of the CPI outcome data. The other, one of the, the kind of big themes that I see is that clinical education experiences really seem to be approached by the students as a cost issue. How much will it cost me to go there for housing, for travel, to meet their dress code, et cetera, instead of what is the value of experience? Um, having been in different areas of practice in my career, I can tell you that 
you will not learn more from any setting than home care. It's not my preferred practice area, but for a student to choose home care for a clinical rotation is probably the best decision they could make. Um, and very few are choosing that. Um, I think there are fewer opportunities in home care overall. Um, rural health care, how important it is in meeting that generalist need. There are physician providers who are not going to rural areas. So if PTs go there, can we fill that primary provider gap potentially? Um, and so I, I've spoken again, and another issue is the student mental health issue. The expectations are high. Uh, we have students coming out that are letting us know on their final rotation, they're struggling in their rotation, but they owe $200,000. It's really hard for a clinician to fail that student. Uh, and I know the clinicians don't fail them. We just observe and evaluate, and then the school passes or fails them. It is really hard not to be empathetic towards someone who owes that kind of money. Uh, but yet there are no guarantees. You know, nobody guarantees when you graduate from med school, you're going to pass your boards. Nobody guarantees you're going to pass PT school. So we do still have to hold um, a high standard of care, but we need to be concerned about the student's mental health and how they're doing all along the, the continuum. Yeah, and one other thing that I want to add on to your first point that you had brought, I think you brought up so many good and valid concerns. I think that we could dive into all of them within a long time. But, you know, back to the proliferation of programs, I know apart from the things you had said, um, one more thing to add on there is, of course, then there's the concern of uh, faculty shortage to be able to fill the roles of those new programs. And are we going to get qualified faculty or are we not? And that's a, a question that I think I think is being examined and I don't know the answer to that but it's certainly a concern you know Chrissy our, of course our final question and doesn't have to be involved with clinical education this can be anything healthcare education related so our big question is if you could change one aspect of healthcare education uh, physical therapy or otherwise which aspect would you change and how would you change it well I don't have all the answers uh, but I think that um, the area of academic obesity is really a problem um, and I think that professions need to uh, identify what is that entry level graduate and really reinforce that and hold all academic programs accountable to that. So I previously used the dry needling example, lymphedema is another one, aquatics. It's one thing to expose um, our students to that. It's another thing to include competency curriculum to the content of their didactic course and increase the cost of education because then that snowballs into anxiety, mental health, and all of those other um, affective issues that we see in the clinic. Sure. And I know this gets back into kind of like really what should curriculum focus on. And I know um, we actually recently had done a poll on Twitter asking, and we got over 700, almost 750 responses on what would you like to see better addressed from a didactic standpoint in entry level education? And the choices were um, exercise prescription, strength and conditioning, uh, pain neuroscience education, business, and then population health. Uh, guess which one won? I would say exercise prescription. 50%. Yep. Pain neuroscience was second, and then it was close third and fourth between uh, business and population health. Now, this is not absolute. This is an informal Twitter poll. So let's, let's, right. keep, let's, <laughs> let's keep that in mind here. But I, but I will say that I think there are some things that I think that are being addressed to help that and kind of help figure out what are those things that all clinicians need. And exercise prescription and those kind of principles seems to be the, one of the most common things I hear among students and new graduates, it's an area they feel weak in. And it makes sense. I mean, that's something every provider, 
no matter what setting to some degree will do. I mean, it's, you're going to have variability in how you apply it. There's different considerations, but we're, we have to know how to prescribe activity. Right. And of those four categories, the four answers that you gave, really two of them hit on the profession of physical therapy. You know, the, the other ones are on maybe a branch. You know, we need to be aware of the business perspective. But if you want to run a clinic, then after PT school, you can go get your MBA. You know, you can go further your education in business perspective. Um, so there needs to be, you know, some basic level presented in school. Uh, but I, I think what happens is the academic program directors want their programs to stand out. And so they, you know, add content and that just adds to that academic obesity. Yeah, no, it's certainly a big topic. And I know there's way more to dive in on that. But, you know, Chrissy, I really appreciate your sharing your perspective on kind of clinical education and your role as an SCCE, because that's definitely been insightful to me, kind of learning from your perspective and kind of seeing that a little bit. Um, but I recognize that some people listening might also have um, questions or maybe want to learn a little bit more. Um, where would you recommend that people look online for either more resources or if they wanted to reach out, should they have a follow-up question? Sure. Uh, so the APTA's website, the APTA, uh, formerly the education section, it's now the Academy of Physical Therapy Education, has a wealth of knowledge about uh, clinical educators and, and the site coordinator role. There is a uh, site coordinator for clinical education resource manual on the APTA website. And then uh, in October each year, that education leadership conference um, has content specific to site coordinators, um, as well as it's just a really good conference. Um, and the content is really scheduled around the collaboration of education. So academic, clinical, uh, administrative, all, all aspects. Uh, and then otherwise, I would recommend people reach out to a local academic program, reach out to the DCE and say, do you have a site coordinator that you, know, you think is doing a good job that could answer some questions for me? Um, I know I get questions all the time from uh, site coordinators, new site coordinators in my area. Um, and I answer them. Uh, I'm not sure if my administration wants to know that, but I, I think it's about collaborating and building a good culture of clinical education. There are plenty of students to go around, um, and it's about building the profession more than building my site. No, I, I completely agree. And I think that's very admirable of you to do that. And Chrissy, thank you so much again for your time and insight. It's been great having you on to learn from you and looking forward to see you at ELC. Sure, I'll be there. Thanks for having me, Brandon. Of course. Access to healthcare is one of the largest issues facing both providers and patients, as millions of people worldwide lack timely and affordable access to healthcare. Anywhere Healthcare, a telehealth platform, is a simple, low cost option for providers and patients that eliminates the barriers to access to all kinds of healthcare. To find out more, check out anywhere.healthcare which is available on our show notes. And if you use the code HET in all caps, when you email to sign up, you'll save 25% off the total cost. Thank you for attending class today. And we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET podcast on Instagram, HET podcast on Facebook, the healthcare education transformation podcast and the homepage, healthcareeducationtransformationpodcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, 
Extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.